Mark chapter number six. And I want to draw our attention tonight. Really, this is going to be more of uh, what I guess would lean towards a topical type message. But I, I think I, you will appreciate where we're going with this. I want to draw your attention uh, back to verse 12. Now, we read those 13 verses, uh, but I want to just draw your attention to verse 12. And with regard to Jesus and the disciples, it simply says this, And they went out and preached that men should repent. Now, I think we all here tonight at least understand that the preachers that are being mentioned here are the Savior's disciples. Uh, The time that's being referred to here in our text is the time when Christ's ministry was really just beginning. His ministry was beginning uh, to uh, go forth. The message of the gospel was beginning to spread out. It was beginning to uh, go out into the highways and the hedges, if you will. And we know that part of that spreading out of the gospel was that in our text it told us that he called unto himself the twelve. And he specifically sent those men out in groups and he sent them out what we refer to as two by two. Now we could think about and talk a lot about uh, where they went. We could talk about how they were to go. In our text, it tells us that they were not to take, really take any provisions. And wherever they went, if they were met with a rejection or they were not welcomed, they were to simply shake the dust off of their feet and move on to the next place. And certainly those things are important. But principally, and what really draws your attention and what really makes us stop to think is what the subject that they were to preach was to be about. The subject was very simple, although very deep. Uh, When we think about this subject, we think about various aspects of it, but it says that as they went out, they preached that men should repent. The subject tonight is very simple, but very deep. It's repentance. When we think about repentance, we think about that why is repentance necessary. But this is exactly the method and this is exactly the message that Jesus preached. The very first words out of our Lord's mouth when he began his preaching ministry was the word repent. It was not drawing people to himself. It was not necessarily calling people uh, to do anything but to repent. Of course, we know that that is the exact same manner in which John the Baptist, as our Lord's forerunner, began his work. He began by declaring repent. So we see those accounts in Matthew 3 and Mark 1 and Luke 3 where here we had John the Baptist preaching the very same message in which our Lord was to preach. But what's even further interesting about this is this was not just a message that was given just for the days of when Christ's ministry was beginning or was being carried on. After he had gone to the cross, after he had been crucified, taken from the cross, buried, rose again from the grave, and ascended back, he was still, the message that Jesus Christ was preaching was still being declared. Now, we're going to look at a a lot of scripture tonight, and that's a good thing. So this might tonight come across more as a Bible study, and that's totally fine. But I want us to see how this word, or this doctrine, or this topic, if you will, of repentance is carried on throughout all of the scripture. First of all, let's go over to Acts chapter number two. And so we are now down the road a bit and we are further along. And we have uh, the message being preached on the day of Pentecost. 
Now we know that this is a very substantial time in biblical history. This is a time when the gospel is still going forth. The, the, we're, we're seeing the establishment of the first century church. And in Acts 2.38, we see Peter stands up and it says, Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now, Peter would have been one of those ones who was sent out in the two by two and was sent out as part of that first preaching tour, that first preaching ministry. Here's Peter now down the road, and he is still preaching repentance. We're still there in Acts. Turn over to Acts 3 and look at verse 19. We again see the same message being carried out. Peter and John uh, preaching, and it says in verse 19, Repent ye therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. And he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive until the time of restitution of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. Repent, repent ye therefore, be converted. We can see this pattern is developing. It's never uh, been removed. And then still in Acts 20, go over to Acts uh, 26, verse 20. Acts 26, verse 20. And now we're reading an account of... Uh, Luke's account of Paul and Paul standing before Agrippa. And of course, in verse 19, uh, Paul declares this truth. He says, Whereupon, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision, but showed first unto them of Damascus and at Jerusalem and throughout all the coast of Judea and then to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God and do works meet for repentance. So we can see that just from these passages, that this doctrine of repentance is a primary doctrine, and it is an important one. Um, probably most churches and most preachers never thought they would get to the day when they would have to be concerned about repentance falling away from the church. Uh, I was reading uh, yesterday an article, um, who wrote the article is not important, but he was talking about a recent meeting that he had uh, with another pastor. And this, he's a pastor of a church that's known for, um, I guess for lack of a better term, it's known, they're known for their easy believism or quick prayerism is what it's sometimes called. Uh, where the gospel really is just this very quick uh, one, two, three, repeat after me. Uh, this church is known nationwide as being a church that counts its numbers. It's all about how many numbers of people have, quote unquote, prayed the prayer. And after he had this coffee, and, and even the man that had the coffee with the other pastor, I wouldn't line up with doctrinally, so to speak, um, but he had a point. And his point was, is throughout the entire conversation, he's talking about the gospel with this man, and he said this pastor never once mentioned the importance of repentance. He was declaring how many people had been saved, how many people were, you know, were, were saved, but there was never any talk of repentance. The gospel must be about repentance. The gospel, there is no gospel without repentance. It is a primary doctrine. Uh, we're getting caught up in the day and age here. We're also hearing people say, what is an essential doctrine? 
Uh, what doctrines are essential and which ones can we kind of just overlook? Um, I tend to take the position that there is no such thing as a non-essential doctrine. Uh, doctrine is all essential. If it's Bible doctrine, then it is essential. Now, some would disagree with that position and say, well, there are some things we just really need to drive home and other things not so uh, important. But I would tell you that I think it's important for our church and it's important for all churches that claim to preach the true gospel uh, to make the subject of repentance a frequent message. We should be reminded about repentance. Uh, not just the repentance that leads unto salvation, but the repentance of sin that you and I should be doing daily. Repenting of our sins. Okay, we're converted once, but we stand in need of repentance every single day. Uh, there's not a day that we can lay our head down at night and say, I have done nothing to be worthy of my repentance today. Uh, repentance ought to be a daily, uh, a daily thing. So we're going to occupy our time tonight with really two aspects of repentance. And I'm trying to make this uh, very simple tonight, intentionally. We're going to deal with, first of all, the nature of repentance. Uh, what is it? Uh, how do we define it? And then the necessity of repentance. So really two main headings, the nature and the necessity. Now, the term repentance, some of us are probably familiar with this, and depending on your background, um, spiritually speaking and church uh, speaking, uh, when, you, when you apply the term directly, when you apply it for the exact definition of what it means, repentance always includes and signifies a change in the disposition of the mind from that which is bad towards that which is good. So repentance always signifies a change. It's a change of mind. I'm changing my mind, my disposition from what is bad to what is good. So it's not just something that I say, well, I repented of my sins, I'm sorry for my sin. It's actually to have a change of mind. Now, a couple of Old Testament passages that deal with this that show us the reality of a change of mind. Let's first of all go to the book of Ezekiel. Uh, chapter 18, Ezekiel chapter number 18. And again, we're not looking at the full context and full chapters here, but we are looking at portions of Scripture that show us this. And in Ezekiel 18, uh, as the prophet Ezekiel is speaking the word of the Lord, which nearly every chapter of Ezekiel begins with the phrase, the word of the Lord came unto me again, saying. So Ezekiel is repeating what God is saying. Verse 30, Therefore... I will judge you, O house of Israel, every one according to his ways, saith the Lord God. Repent and turn yourselves from all your transgressions, so iniquity shall not be your ruin. Cast away from you all your transgressions whereby ye have transgressed, and make you a new heart and a new spirit, for why will ye die, O house of Israel? That word, repent and turn, it is the same in the Hebrew. It is the same Hebrew word. So repent and turn are the same Hebrew words. So there is no repentance without a turning. Now, often the debate is over what does this turning mean? Does it just mean I turn my body physically away? It's the disposition of the mind. My mind has a different thought process now. I'm thinking differently towards that which is bad, and I'm thinking now towards that which is good. Uh, also, let's look over at Jeremiah 25. 
Jeremiah also, of course, we know him as the weeping prophet, and uh, he was sent out by the Lord on a, uh, a mission to turn the, uh, the people of Israel uh, to God, and by, by man's accounts, uh, Jeremiah was not very successful in turning people to repentance. Now, it wasn't because Jeremiah didn't preach the word faithfully, it's because man would not turn. But in Jeremiah 25, 5, uh, let's actually begin, yeah, let's just begin in 5. It says, They said, Turn ye again now everyone from his evil way and from the evil of your doings, and dwell in the land that the Lord hath given unto you and to your fathers forever and ever. Again, turn in the Hebrew is the same word as repent. So we are not doing a disservice to the scripture if we read that as saying, they said, repent ye again, now everyone from his evil way, or turn, turn your mind and its disposition away from that which is bad to that which is good. So we understand that, that is the, that's the nature of repentance and that's the nature of the word. However, we also have to remember that the word in other portions has a somewhat different meaning. There are certain passages of Scripture when it is said about God, that it is said that God repented or that God turned away. He is not repenting because he is guilty of sin or guilty of that which is bad. Uh, this word is repent, but it, when it's approached to God, uh, it is, of course, has a different meaning because God cannot and would not sin. So we have to endeavor and understand that that word repent, when it applies to the sinner, of course, is a change of mind. God's mind didn't change. It doesn't mean that God one time said, uh, you were once doing this and now I've changed my mind towards you. No, uh, God, uh, his mind is not changed. His mind doesn't have to be changed from a bad to a good. But primarily when we see it throughout scripture, we see repentance and the meaning of it means to turn. So with those basic definitions, uh, let me give you a few headings or subheadings underneath this nature of repentance. First of all, repentance begins with a consciousness of depravity. Repentance begins with a consciousness of depravity. Uh, in order for repentance to be real and in repentance to be true, there has to be a consciousness of my depravity. But I would take it one step further. Not only my depravity, it's one thing to say, I know I'm a sinner. It's another thing to say, not only am I a sinner, but I also am aware of the guilt and the danger of being in this condition. Okay, we, we tend to make this, we, we tend to simplify it too many times and we say, well, repentance is just simply knowing you're bad. No, repentance is based upon not only knowing your depravity, but also knowing the guilt and the danger that we are currently in, in our fallen and unregenerated state. In other words, when true repentance comes to the sinner, that sinner is becoming aware, not just of the consequences, but of the reality of their own guilt, their sin towards God, and their own depravity. Oftentimes... Bad gospel presentations start out with the consequences of if you die without Christ, you will what? You will go to hell. Now, is that a true statement? Yes. 
But real repentance is not going to begin with the consequences. Real repentance is going to begin with a consciousness of their own depravity and the guilt and the actual danger that they're in before the consequences then become to come to the forefront. And I hope that, I hope that makes sense to us. So that really is, is scripturally what we're looking at. So again, let's go back now to Ezekiel and see examples of this. So we're going to be in Ezekiel and Acts for the next few minutes. So if you want to hold your place... Uh, We're going to come right back to Ezekiel a couple of times. But Ezekiel chapter 20 and verse 43. Ezekiel 20 verse 43. And let's begin begin with uh, verse 42. And it says, Ye shall know that I am the Lord when I shall bring you into the land of Israel, into the country for the which I lifted up mine hand to give it to your fathers. And there shall ye remember your ways and all your doings, wherein ye have been defiled, and ye shall loathe yourselves in your own sight for all your evils that ye have committed. And ye shall know that I am the Lord when I have wrought you, I have wrought with you for my name's sake, not according to your wicked ways, nor according to your corrupt doings, O ye house of Israel, saith the Lord God. You'll notice there in verse 43, that phrase, ye shall loathe yourselves. Sadly, some of those gospel presentations, I gave the illustration of the the two pastors that were meeting and the one pastor was much about quick prayerism. Uh, There was no loathing. There was no recognition of depravity, no recognition of guilt. It was just simply pray after me. There is this loathing in your own sight. That's a part of this repentance. It is, it is the very nature of repentance. Uh, let's go over to Ezekiel 36, just, just a few pages over. Uh, the prophet Ezekiel again speaking here in verse 31. And this is right after the part where Ezekiel speaks God's word again and talks about a new heart. Let's begin there, actually. Let's look at Ezekiel 36, 26. It says, A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and ye shall keep my judgments and do them. And ye shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and ye shall be my people, and I will be your God. I will also save you from all your uncleanness, and I will call for the corn and will increase it and lay no famine upon you. And I will multiply the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field that ye shall receive no more reproach of famine among the heathen. Then shall ye remember your own evil ways and your doings that were not good and shall loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and for your abominations. I am a, an avid reader of the, the old, old Puritans and some of the, the very pastors and, and preachers from days gone by. And there's a common theme that you see running with many of those men. When they talked about the subject of repentance, they used this kind of terminology. They they used loathing themselves. Uh, Some of you uh, might be familiar with the name David Brainerd. David Brainerd was a, a, a missionary to the Native Americans in this country. He lived an extremely short life. He died at 28 years old, but he had given his entire life over to Native American missions. And one of some of the greatest writings that that he left is not the writings of sermons. 
Um, It's not a book of sermons. It's a book of his journals. It's the journals of when he would go out and he would speak to, to these Native Americans and other people about the gospel and about salvation. And he would actually write in these journal entries this feeling of how he did not live up to what God wanted him to be. His journal is not filled with these victories. It's not filled with all these successes. It's not filled with, I saw this many people get saved and I did this, I did this, I did this. You see this attitude of, I loathe the fact that all of my life and all of my being is not dedicated to God. This man died of a horrible disease at 28 years old. And we would look at him and we'd say, well, this man gave his life for the gospel. He was never content because he was always battling his own sin. He was always battling, and he would use terminologies like that. I loathe myself for the feelings that I'm having. I loathe the, the sin that I committed today. A lot of your Christian books today, you don't get that. You get more of, well, here's how to run a successful ministry, or here's how to have success. Again, I'm not opposed to gospel success if it's people truly being saved. I'm all about that success. But I think there's more of a point here than do we need another book on how to applaud ourselves or maybe do we need more reminders of how we ought to loathe ourselves. You say, preacher, that's not going to draw people. Listen, that's scripture. Even after we're saved, we should be reminded of what we once were and how Christ has delivered us from that, which should be our motivation to move forward. So this repentance does begin with this consciousness of this. So this deals with the view of ourselves. If our repentance is genuine, it is going to be accompanied by an uneasiness of mind. What is this uneasiness of mind? This uneasiness of mind that is mixed with godly sorrow. In other words, we're not comfortable. We're not comfortable in our sin. We're not comfortable that we've committed it. It's uneasy. Now, Paul himself wrote about being careful not to sear the conscience. To get to a place where the conscience is no longer good, it's now your conscience is seared. It's not even responding to the basic things. But this view of ourselves, we are reminded of our own sin against God. The sorrow comes because it arises from the regret that we have offended the greatest and the best of all beings, which is God himself. Sin is not what we do to other people primarily. It's a sin against a holy God. So when I sin, if I sin against you, yes, that's bad. But ultimately, what's worse is I'm sinning against God. Joseph, when he removed himself from that situation from Potiphar's wife, his exact words were, how can I sin against this great God? And we all know that story. Joseph probably could have gotten away with it. He probably couldn't have got could have got away with the sin. No other human being probably would have known about it, but he and and the wife there. But he said, How can I do this great sin against God? And that's really the that's really the attitude that repentance brings us to. Another quality of the nature of true repentance is a hatred of sin. How do we truly show that we hate sin? It's not just by what we say. But even in Acts, it was mentioned that we show our hatred towards sin by the fruits that demonstrate in our lives that true repentance has taken place. In other words, 
even the very sight of sin makes us want to turn from it. We don't want to put before our eyes those things which are sinful. We will endeavor to avoid all evil, and we have a sincere desire to do the will of God. We truly desire to do God's will. Uh, turn with me to the prophet Isaiah and look at verse, uh, chapter 55. Isaiah 55 and look at verse 7. Isaiah 55, verse 7, we begin in verse 6. It says, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. There is this hatred towards sin, and it is, it is one of the fruits of repentance. There is such a hatred of sin that there's a desire to be delivered from sin. Oftentimes, some people say that the greatest reason why people don't turn and repent is because they have to give up their sin, and they don't want to give it up. Nobody in this room, including myself, humanly speaking, wants to give up our sin. I don't want to give up my sin. Even to this day, as a child of God, there is still within me that old nature that says, I don't want to give up sin. Why? Because the Bible says there's pleasure in sin for a season. When someone tries to tell you, hey, there's no pleasure in sin, there actually is. And it is there, but it's only for a season. And I've had many, many times in my own life where I've been reminded of that, where I find myself saying, listen, I'm not loathing sin right now. I'm actually allowing it. So we have to be very careful about this. And that includes all of us. It is a diligent desire to be delivered from this sin. So it begins with a consciousness of the depravity and guilt and danger. We have this right view of ourselves that it should produce an uneasiness in our mind. There is true repentance is marked by a hatred to sin. And fourthly, there's this desire to be delivered from sin. But then let's make sure we understand that repentance is the gift of God. In all of this, remember, repentance is the gift of God. In all of its distinct operations, in every individual, although it might differ in degree, its nature is always the same. Repentance is the gift of God, and repentance is the only way to Christ. Remember, Jesus' message was repent. Jesus' message today is still repent. The message of the church today is still repentance. It has never changed. It has never gone out of style. It has never changed to where now the God of the New Testament does not need us to repent anymore. Just simply acknowledge. No, it is repentance. Acts 5.31, Peter says, Him hath God exalted with His right hand to be a prince and a savior for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. It is, it is God giving repentance to His people. So we see the nature of this. And secondly, let's quickly look at the necessity of repentance. 
Now, the necessity kind of runs along with this nature. But the necessity of repentance is first of all understood by the fact that God commands it and requires it. So God commands repentance and he requires it. Again, in the book of Acts, which is just loaded with this, it's continually throughout the entire epistle. Uh, Acts 17, uh, verse 30. It says, In the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Now we've got to make it clear that this winked at here doesn't mean that God at any point in time ever overlooked it. Some people have falsely said that there was a time when God was overlooking it. God was never overlooking sin. But he did not destroy those who were guilty of that sin at that exact moment. Now, one of the reasons, especially throughout the Gentiles, and we read throughout the book of Acts for being reminded of the Gentiles' idolatry and the false religion, he did not destroy all of them for their sins because he had purpose before the foundation of the world that the gospel would be sent to them. But it wasn't because he was overlooking that. He purposed, and it says, all men everywhere to repent. Do you realize that when the gospel is truly preached, every single person who hears the gospel is under an obligation or a command to turn from sin? When he says all men are called to repent, man is under an obligation to repent. God commands it. He requires it. The very doctrine which Christ delivered and the very doctrine which John the Baptist delivered in the form of a command, it was not an invitation. It was repent ye, not I invite you to repent. I command you to repent. It's the same command today. We're commanded to repent. So God commands and requires it under the necessity. Secondly, all need repentance. Why does every person need repentance? Because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Those who have lived lives similar or like Paul himself, how he lived prior to his conversion, as well as those whose lives have even been improper in different seasons, are called to repent. That means there's nobody on this planet who does not require repentance. Now you'll hear people say, I don't have anything to repent of. I don't have anything to be sorry for. I don't need God to forgive me for anything because I'm a good person. Everybody needs repentance. Repentance unto salvation is the only way to Christ. Now, we don't necessarily look at this and say, do all need repentance does not mean that all will repent. But thirdly, as far as the necessity, there can be no pardon or no salvation without repentance. So if you have a gospel that's being propagated that ignores repentance, it is not the gospel. It might sound right in every other corner and every other avenue, but if it lacks repentance, it is not the true gospel. Repentance is the gospel. In Luke chapter 13... And verse number 3, we see the nature of this. Luke 13, 3. It says, I tell you, except ye repent. 
ye shall all likewise perish. This is a direct lesson to learn. Then this was a chapter 13 of Luke is about a natural disaster. It was about the tower that fell. The tower in Shalom fell in verse 4 and 18 in whom the, upon the tower in Shalom fell and slew them. Think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem. I tell you, verse 5, nay, except you repent, ye shall all likewise perish. I always remember this verse because I remember this verse becoming so vivid on 9-11. Almost every church along the way, some along the way, took this as a tower falling. And they looked at this and said, this is, this is part of Bible prophecy. Or There's tower and this fell and it slew them. This certainly must be the judgment of God. And everybody started arguing about what the causes and the purposes. And we see all these years later, and we're still arguing about who and why and what. Jesus' purpose in telling this parable was not about, was somebody more guilty than others? Was, were the people in that tower greater sinners than others? No, he said the point of the parable is, is that unless you repent, you will also likewise perish. It's a very simple lesson. Sometimes we tend to major on the things that Christ and, and God did not put the emphasis on. We tend to focus on the 18 and who were the 18. We focus on the tower. And he was saying, look, the lesson you're to learn is this. Unless you repent, you will perish. You will die. Now, he's not just talking about physical death because we know, even as we read in Ecclesiastes 9, that there is an event that comes to all. It is death. But we can infer again from Luke 13, 3, the very nature of what, how things are. Would it be rational or reasonable for a person to ask for forgiveness or for a pardon unless they were conscious of their guilt. It wouldn't be reasonable. It would not be reasonable for me to talk to somebody about the gospel and ask them to ask God for pardon if they were not aware or conscious of their guilt. Wouldn't that be right? If a man or a woman does not know of their guilt and their depravity, why would they call on a God for a pardon if they don't think or know they're guilty? You see, that's how you can get a person to pray a prayer and never ever once acknowledge their guilt, their depravity, their hatred towards sin. And yet somebody says and declares sadly to them, well, praise God you're saved. That other pastor brought out a point to that other pastor. And the sad end of that story was, is the pastor who he was telling this to, about, who, who still held, this is a rather large church that holds to this. He didn't seem even phased by this. He didn't seem phased that person doesn't have to know about their guilt. They don't have to, all they have to do is call upon the name of the Lord, but they don't have to know about guilt. They just got to say this prayer. But repentance has got to include an acknowledgement of guilt. The question to him was, is that if you have had as many people saved as you say you've had saved, and I've asked this question too, where are they? Where are they? There's a church in Dallas, Texas that claims that they have led one million people to the Lord. One million and yet, even in the generations that have happened since then, 
there has never been a real difference in the church roles identifying that people were actually added unto the church. So what did they do? They prayed a prayer, but they never changed. There was no change. Again, you can say, preacher, it's not for you to determine who's saved and who's lost. I can't determine that. I can't see the heart. I can't tell a person, you are saved. I can hear you profess. I can hear you tell me what you've believed, what you've done. But only Jesus Christ and only God himself knows if you truly are in the faith. But every one of us are to examine ourselves. And I ask ourselves the question tonight, do we have this, do we characterize repentance this way? Is the nature of repentance, is this how we think about it? Do we think about it from the necessity standpoint? But why would anybody want to be pardoned of something they don't know they're guilty of? Why would somebody want a blessing and a reward of something they didn't know that they were not going to receive? In other words, why would a person who's not aware of guilt have any desire for a blessing or a reward? They wouldn't. Unless there's a feeling of guilt and a feeling of sorrow, there is not going to be repentance. The consequences are certainly awful of dying without the forgiveness of sin and the favor of God, but a man must know, he must know his fate before he's going to acknowledge that he needs repentance. So what do we do with this? Well, of course, we look at our Lord's instruction and we understand that if the Lord taught it and he taught it directly, that they were to go out and that man should repent, then we need to let every single person who knows, who knows the truth, they should go out and they should preach repentance. We should say to the moral man, the person who is morally or appears to be morally sound, every one of you knows somebody who is moral, has, sense, has a good sense of morality, but does not know Christ. Sometimes the moral man is the most difficult man to come to that acknowledgement because he thinks his morality is in fact his salvation. So we say to the moralist, unless you repent, unless you repent, you shall likewise perish. The morality of man, the morality of a woman will never save that person. What about the person who believes that there is no need to keep or denies the reality of needing to keep the moral law anymore. They say, look, we have, a, we have a license now that we're saved by grace. We have the ability to live and act however we want because at the end of it all, we have grace. We have a license of sin. Paul would say, God forbid. And we would say to that person who denies the need of the moral law, we would say, unless you repent, you, will in like, you shall also likewise perish. So the message is the same to the, mor to the moralist and it's the same to the person who denies the need to keep the law. But it's also the message to every single person who professes to be one of his. He or she can never be restored and never be saved without repentance. Those are the implications. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Every sinner can rest assured in this fact and the great promise that Christ is able to save, to save the sinner to the uttermost, completely and fully and totally. There is none that are unsavable, as we sometimes hear. 
There is none we can look at and say, that person, because of what they've done, because of what they've said, they are unsavable. God's grace and the saving of the saving grace of God. Christ is able to save to the uttermost, but there is this requirement that they must repent and believe the gospel. A true gospel will lead men and women to repentance. A false gospel will lead men and women to rely upon themselves and to rely upon their choices and to rely upon their good works. But the reality is, is Jesus' message was repent. Repent ye. Repent or you in light, you shall also likewise perish. Again, some would ask the question, is it important to preach the gospel and to preach repentance even to a group of most likely people who are already believers? I would say absolutely it is. This idea that says the gospel only needs to be preached to the lost, it only needs to be preached to people who are clearly not in the faith. No, we need to be reminded of the gospel every single day. I think the church needs to be reminding one another of the truth of the gospel and what repentance is, the nature of it and the necessity, not just simply saying, hey, I took care of that already. We should constantly be reminded upon what Christ has done and the message that he proclaimed, which was repent. I hope tonight that if you are saved, you'll be encouraged that you did receive the gift of repentance, that you were made aware of your depravity, you were made aware of the danger you were in, you have a hatred of sin, you have a desire to flee from it, because the gift of repentance, the true saving faith, leads us to want God not the things that are against God. So I hope tonight we'll be encouraged if we're in the faith. If we're not in the faith, then the message is always the same as every time we end every service. Repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Repent and be saved. Let's go ahead and stand if you would. We'll be dismissed in prayer tonight. Again, I appreciate you being here.